0: Hi, my name is Adiri Zanskinier. Welcome to The Healthcare Stage, the go-to podcast for innovators dedicated to enhancing health and wellness globally. In each episode, we dive into insightful conversations with those at the forefront of healthcare innovation. This episode focuses on groundbreaking advancement in the field of anesthesia and analgesic drugs for cancer patients. My guest, Dr. Josh Mincer from Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center in New York, will share how principles of precision oncology are being applied to study the effect of anesthetic and analgesic drug on cancer outcomes through the lens of patient underlying tumor genomics. These cutting edge studies, along with future research, could significantly impact cancer patient survival rates and chances of reoccurrence. This line of research is particularly important since most anesthetic and pain medications are generic drugs, As a result, the findings of these studies could enhance patient outcome without incurring additional costs. It is my absolute pleasure to host Dr. Josh Minster at the Healthcare State. Josh is an anesthesiologist and an associate professor at Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center in New York. He also holds a PhD in biophysics. And aside from his clinical interest in general anesthesia and thoracic anesthesia, over the years, he has participated in a variety of research initiatives. More recently, Dr. Mincer has focused his effort on exploring how the application of anesthetics and analgesics impact cancer outcome. Hi, Josh.
1: Adi, thank you for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you.
0: It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm looking forward to conversation. I would like to start our discussion with two terms that you coined. The first is perioperative oncology, and the second is precision on analgesia Please explain what these means.
1: When I use those terms, my intention is to draw a parallel to modern oncology. Uh, By precision, what is meant in modern oncology is that patient specific factors, and generally that means a patient's tumor omics, genomics and other are used to understand how a drug can affect outcome. Uh, Patients with different omics uh, get different drugs or different dosings of drugs. And so that type of precision that's what we mean by precision, and that's what we're trying to do in our research as well. In our case, it has to do with drugs given for anesthesia, that is perioperative, and drugs given for pain, that's the analgesia. But we want to take the same approach of precision in, in studying and ultimately treating patients with these drugs.
0: So the notion that anesthesia and pain drugs might have an effect on cancer outcome is not new, right? Right. But in the past, the researchers didn't have access to patients' omics data. Please say a few words about how was this question studied in the, in the past, and what were the main limitations back then?
1: Absolutely. So like many things, uh, you know, what's old is new again to some extent. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if you look into this question in the literature, you'll find papers dealing with this general question of the impact of these drugs on cancer outcomes. Uh, Going back to even the 1970s, you'll see a paper in the late 1970s of mice that were dosed with certain anesthesia drugs at at the time and to see the effect on tumor growth in these mice. Uh, But what's new in what we do is the incorporation of the omics data. Uh, So the field really experienced a bit of a renaissance in 2006 with the publication of an important paper at the Cleveland Clinic by uh, by Daniel Sessler and colleagues. Um, but even from that point on, while there's been a lot of work in this field, nothing has really focused on individual patient differences. So even in the preclinical data, which there's a lot of, which deals with either, you know let's say, animal models such as mice or cell culture, uh, t- tumor cells and culture, for instance, uh, you're not looking at the individual differences at the genomics level between those mice or those cells. Um, And even in the clinical work that's been done since 2006, most of it retrospective uh, as well, you're seeing uh, patients where we don't know anything about their individual tumor genomics. Uh, A lot of those studies as well suffer from another limitation, which is for a a certain amount of time, uh, people in the field sort of view cancer as one disease. So they might've looked at patients with different types of cancers in their studies. One might've had a lung cancer, one might've had a colon cancer. What we know in modern oncology, what's obvious to our oncological colleagues, is that cancer is not one disease, it's it's many diseases. And we need to be sure that we're looking at the same disease when we study these questions.
0: So in future prospective studies, focusing on patients with very specific type of cancer, how do you know what are the mutations they, they all have in common?
1: Right so first i want to say there are there have been some prospective studies done more recently in this field and there are some underway um, and i don't know of any that are incorporating omics data at this point uh, our hope would be that eventually they would um, and i as well to hope that they're looking at patients that have at least similar types of cancers but in terms of how you omics uh, access omics data is that is that your question how do we actually get that data yeah exactly Okay, Um, in practice, that data usually comes from a biopsy. So let's say a patient, for example, has lung cancer uh, and they're going to come for resection of that cancer. Prior to any of that, when they're diagnosed, they get a biopsy. Now a biopsy is invasive. It might be minimally invasive, but ultimately a needle has to be introduced into the body and a sample, a small sample taken uh, from, from the tumor. Now, That standard of care, cancer in general, what's different and what happens at institutions like ours and what's happening more and more in the outside world um, is that part of that biopsy is then used to sequence the tumor and to understand the genomic makeup of the tumor, which is to say, look at uh, let's say um, many genes of interest in cancer and to see which have mutations and which don't, for instance. So that biopsy can be the source of the tumor sample, a small sample that can be used to sequence and give us the genomic data of interest before the patient even comes for surgery.
0: But would it be fair to say that in many centers, they simply don't have this data bank, right? Of certain mutations of certain uh, constipations.
1: Absolutely. So I'm fortunate to be at an institution where they've been collecting this type of data for a long time, really because they've realized for a long time that this is the future. Uh, and that's where oncology is heading. Uh, in, in all of its new therapeutics, there's the understanding that, that there has to be precision. We have to know something about the patient's tumor in order to properly uh, to treat it. Uh, but as you said, acquiring that genomics level data is not standard of care in, in a good part of the world today. A lot of that has to do with cost. Uh, it still can be expensive to do that. Uh, but the costs are coming down year by year. So in time, um, this will become a necessity and it, it will become standard of care throughout the world to obtain this type of information when obtaining a biopsy.
0: Your answer relates to the next question I want to ask you because the concept of perioperative oncology and precision oncoanalgesia is is very new, is is unfamiliar in essence. So, How much of a challenge is it to introduce these concepts into your community, the community of anesthesiologists and and pain physicians?
1: There are challenges. Uh, On the one hand, one challenge is is simply to kind of change a paradigm, to change a viewpoint. There's a lot of resistance in my own field even to the idea that the drugs we give, either for anesthesia or for pain, uh, can have any effect on cancer. Uh, Even when we're giving them long term, for a patient's cancer pain and all the more so when we're giving them let's say intraoperatively a small time window exposure nonetheless there's an increasing body of evidence over a number of years now that these drugs do interact with cancer and even in that relatively short time window of the perioperative period because it's a special time period in terms of what's going on in the patient's body uh, they can have an effect on longer term outcomes so one thing is we need to change minds in that regard and Ultimately, one has to look at the evidence and judge it. Um, but you know, other, other challenges are, are the accessibility of the data. Uh, it's hard to argue with somebody that they need to start thinking about incorporating omics data into their practice when they have no access to omics data. Right. And at this point in the community, that's often the reality. But at some point, this data will be, will be widespread. It, it won't be data that we're collecting. It'll be data that's being collected for oncological reasons. But then we as anesthesiologists or pain doctors will then have access to and and conceivably use it uh, to help dose patients' drugs to optimize their outcomes.
0: So walk me through the process of data collection required to conduct such a prospective study. How would that study look like?
1: Sure. Let's consider, for instance, maybe we're looking at patients with a specific type of cancer, lung adenocarcinoma, let's say, for instance. That's where we've done some of our retrospective work, one of the systems. So we would have patients who would come in, would have a biopsy, would get diagnosed prior to their surgery. And those that had an early stage cancer and therefore were uh, amenable to resection to surgery to remove it, um, would have their they would anyway have their biopsy sequenced, so that data would then be being collected. By the time they came for surgery, we would have that data. We would then randomize, we would enroll and randomize patients first into two groups, one to get a relatively high dose of let's say opioids, if we're studying the opioid question, intraoperatively as part of their anesthesia, and one where we give them a lower dose. Uh, But then beyond that, we would further um, stratify those groups of high and low doses uh, into whether or not they had a certain mutation. So you can imagine there, four groups, um, let's say we knew a certain, we have a hypothesis from our retrospective work that a certain specific mutation will make a patient more susceptible to the opioid and, and cancer outcome relationship. So you will have a group that has the mutation that gets high opioids, a group that has the mutation that gets low opioids, a group that does not have the mutation that gets high opioids, and a group that does not have the mutation that gets low opioids. And with enough statistical power after doing enough patients, we should be able to answer the questions of first of all, does the difference in opioid dose matter in terms of recurrence rates, for instance? And second, does having that mutation matter in terms of the dose you get, whether it makes a difference for outcome? That would be an example uh, of the study. If we in fact showed through a prospective study that that was true, that, that would probably be practice changing such that we would argue that prior to surgery, one has to get this omics level data, and one has to tailor the anesthetic based on the presence or absence of that mutation in clinical in, practice.
0: In this example, you choose patients by sequencing their DNA, but you might receive very different results in your future prospective studies if you look at patients' RNA or protein or epigenomics. So, this is uh, we're just starting here.
1: <laughs> You're exactly right. It's the tip of the iceberg, and. The reason for that is sort of that old joke about the guy who's looking for his keys in the parking lot, and he's only looking under the under the light yeah. when they could be anywhere. Uh, and the reason he's looking under the light is because that's where he can see. Um, we have to start where we can see. So, uh, just historically, um, you know, because I guess of the human genome project and and other such work, sequencing is where a lot of the efforts have been DNA sequencing. So we now have at our institution at least, a breadth of genomics of DNA sequence data. But of course, the interesting interactions could be at another level. Uh, At the transcriptomics level, that is how the genes are expressed in the tumor, differences in genes, gene expression. At the proteomics level, how those genes are then translated into proteins and differences in those proteins, et cetera. Epigenomics, how the DNA is methylated and how that affects expression. Um, And as more and more of that data is acquired, we will wanna look at it and we wanna study it in a similar way. Uh, That's already going on. I mean, in oncology, certainly people are incorporating transcriptomics uh, and um, and other levels of data. Um, Ultimately, I think, you know, as we will, this will be a multimodal data approach. Uh, We're going to ultimately probably have a model where we're able to feed in the genomics data of a patient, their transcripts, transcriptomics data, et cetera. And ultimately, you know, In a big data-driven way, we'll have an AI model that will be able to tell us what the optimal uh, anesthetic or analgesic type plan is, but that's still way down the road. But you're correct. I completely agree. We really want to be looking at all of those levels of data and ultimately putting them all together into one large sort of big data model.
0: Perhaps in the near future, liquid biopsies will play an important role in the ability to easily collect different types of data.
1: It's interesting you mentioned liquid biopsies. Uh, we're incorporating those into our own research right now. Uh, and, and you're right about what the power of liquid biopsies. Let me take a step back just in case um, some of your viewers are unfamiliar with liquid biopsies. So we, we talked about before how the starting point for this type of information is a biopsy, which is invasive. One has to take a, a sample from the tumor uh, with a needle or otherwise. Sometimes even we don't get information until a big chunk of it's taken out in the surgery. Um, In any case, that's how it's usually done. There's cost to that. Often patients need anesthesia, they need to be in hospital, uh, and there's risks. While it's minimally invasive, there are risks. The idea of a liquid biopsy is that we could obtain that information, uh, but simply through drawing blood from a vein, much as we get all types of other information from blood tests. Why, why or how is this possible? Well, a tumor in a person's body is always shedding things. So it's shedding things into the patient's circulation, which then are traveling all over the body. It sheds circulating, it sheds cells into, into circulation. These are called circulating tumor cells. Those cells, in fact, are the basis of metastasis and ultimately recurrence. Other things are shed into circulation, like cell-free DNA other molecules and other types of of signaling things like vesicles that contain signaling molecules and all these are probably important in the process of recurrence and metastasis and progression of disease so imagine that we could actually collect a sample of that as it's flowing through a patient's veins and simply through a blood draw we could access that it's game changing this is a bleeding area of research uh, it's already being incorporated into drug development in modern oncology, but it's still quite experimental. There's ways to go on it. It's a bleeding area, the bleeding edge of research. Um, it's a game changer because it's not invasive. You can do it as much as you want simply by, by drawing blood. So it holds promise in oncology for the ability to screen someone before they even know cancer, that know they might have cancer and possibly pick up these cells and treat them as early as possible. Similarly, to screen a patient who had cancer for recurrence as early as possible, and and also to test the effects of drugs in real time. Give a drug, draw a blood sample, see what it's doing to tumor or to circulating tumor cells in real time. And that's, of course, where our primary interest is, to see what our drugs might be doing by way of taking a liquid biopsy. So we actually are currently, uh, at our institution, there's a a robust program to develop liquid biopsies in-house and in in partnership with industry partners. And we're part of that, we're, we're involved and we're utilizing those technologies in our research as well. But ultimately that would be the way to go.
0: I, I think that you mentioned the industry, I think that the effort required to correlate between cancer outcome, the anesthetic, the anesthetic or analgesic administered and the patient omics data is, is heavy lifting. And one would expect that the pharmaceutical companies selling these drugs would participate in this effort However, their incentive to do that is low because most of these drugs are generics. So it's a problem.
1: (laughs) I agree. So many of the drugs we currently use in anesthesia and pain management are generic, which means there's little incentive on the part of industry to further study uh, how they interact with cancer outcomes, how they might interact with other cancer therapeutics in particular immunotherapies maybe we'll get back to that, but we ourselves recently published a paper showing that uh, these analgesic drugs can interact to reduce the efficacy of immunotherapies, which is really the cutting edge of of cancer therapy. Um, And so, right, if these drugs are generic, even if there might be an effect, there's little incentive to study them. Uh, However, I would argue that this is an important question and and it has to be studied. Uh, Furthermore, um, I would say there's, There are two areas uh, where there might be more incentive. One is where companies are actually developing new pain drugs, which is happening, um, Mm -hmm. as well as possibly new anesthetic drugs. In that case, the issue of the drug being generic isn't there, so there might be more incentive to put effort into understanding these drug interactions. The other case, which I think is is probably more probable where we might make progress, are companies developing new cancer therapeutics, immunotherapies in particular. If I was developing a new therapeutic, I would want to know if a patient taking my drug who's also receiving a pain drug, whether it's generic or not, whether that pain drug might decrease the efficacy of my drug. And so I think there's incentive there uh, to study that interaction and because the data is being collected to see if it might be mediated by the omics level data of the patients who are receiving these drugs.
0: I think, I think that perhaps the incentive is is somewhat higher with uh, the with, uh, new anti-cancer drugs, right? Because you may have the possibility to kind of move the needle and uh, bring new drugs that have better drug-drug interactions with current generic anti-pain anesthetics drug. And in that sense, it might be a, a super valuable in terms of overall survival and recurrence rate, but with new uh, currently underdeveloped anti-pain drugs, I'm not sure that the incentive is to investigate investigate them in the in the concept of uh, in the aspect of uh, of uh, the, the cancer outcome, because they want to improve efficacy, they want to improve the safety profile. The ballpark is a little bit different, and perhaps there is uh, a room for regulators to, uh, to step in and request that they also show uh, something in regards to the, to the interaction with the anti-cancer drug.
1: It's an excellent point. I mean, this is not an uncommon scenario, right? Um, unfortunately, many uh, patients with cancer who will be receiving these more advanced therapeutics also have pain due to their cancer and they will be receiving um, pain drugs at present, if that's usually opioids, generic opioids, uh, so this is a very common scenario, uh, and I think there's a patient safety issue here and, and and an outcomes issue, and there might be a role for regu- a role for regulators. Uh, I think there's also a role for academia. You know, we're primarily academics. Um, whether and, and you know, government and, and other funding, foundation funding, and other academic sort of type of research funding can help in this regard too. But I I agree that um, this is, this is a very common scenario that patients rec- receive both types of drugs and there needs to be more work in this area.
0: I think that m- most cancer patients may be exposed over time to increasing dosages of opioids as they develop tolerance, right? And so this line of research is super significant because the opioid effect on the anti-cancer drug may increase over time. So it, makes a, of, it makes a lot of sense to, to look into it.
1: I agree, and, and think about that for a moment, right? We're not claiming that the drugs we give in anesthesia and pain are curing cancer, for instance, or are making the patient's survival tremendously worse. I mean, these aren't cancer drugs. We're just arguing that that there is an effect there uh, and interactions there. Um, but you know, in, in oncology, if you can move the needle, even a few percentage points, if you can increase lifespan by a few months, let alone a year or more, if you can do that for more patients, so the probability of, of, of increased life occurring for more patients, you know, in oncology, there are drugs being developed, expensive drugs that might, that are only looking to push the needle a few percentage points. So we're making the same argument. And as you said, all the more so, again, not an uncommon scenario, um, due to opioid tolerance, you'll have patients um, who have been receiving opioids for their cancer pain who are now at getting tremendous doses of opioids. So even at the effect, is relatively small for a sort of normal dose of opioids. It might be in patients receiving much higher doses. The effect is more pronounced. Uh, I think that that's very intuitive and makes sense, and you know has to be has to be studied further.
0: And also perhaps uh, companies that are choosing to uh, take these generic drugs and further investigate them and um, bring a new cookbook which says patients uh, suffering from a specific type of cancer with mutation X should receive uh, anti-pain medication Y, perhaps such a good cookbook should be uh, incentivized from a, from a different entity, for example, from, from, from payers, which can choose, for example, to purchase more generics from such companies that took the time and the effort to develop such cookbooks. Perhaps the solution should come from there.
1: That's a very interesting idea. Uh, I'll admit that it's not an area of expertise of mine, but it sounds like an intriguing idea to me. Um, And certainly in our healthcare system where there are these different stakeholders, uh, there might be the opportunity for for different stakeholders to influence this process. I think as more and more data is collected, if the evidence continues to show and and uh, that that this is real, then then we have to seize the opportunity. It's an obligation really to explore this further and for the relevant stakeholders uh, to to invest in this.
0: It was uh, fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your input with us. Uh, for audience interested in learning more about Dr. Vince's research, I recommend reviewing his Google Scholar page. This podcast is available on my LinkedIn page called The Healthcare Stage and also on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're working uh, at companies developing novel solutions aimed at improving the lives of others, or you are researchers in hospital or academia conducting groundbreaking research with potential clinical application, do get in touch with me at adi.thehealthcarestate.com. At Josh, I hope this new approach towards personalization of anesthetic and analgesic based on patient omics would improve cancer outcome. And I hope there would be new mechanisms to incent- incentivize the pharmaceutical industry to conduct new randomized clinical studies with these generic drugs. Thank you so much for coming over. It was an honor. Adi, thank and a you.
1: Pleasure. You know, as uh, as clinicians ourselves, um, that is our ultimate goal—to to affect outcomes and to improve them. And so I share that goal, and uh, just hoping to do our part to try to to move that forward. Um, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to be with you today.
0: Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you.